Well, Father, we take our Bibles now to receive a word from you that it would indeed be true that we would have a growing love for you, that we would understand you more each week, that we would grow in the disciplines of godliness, that we would have tender hearts of obedience, and that we would have uh, ears that are receptive and spirits that are willing to surrender to you. Use this time, Lord, as you do so often, to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to convict us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am confident by now that um, most, if not all of you, have been quite aware of the many incredible current events that are unfolding around the world. I have a growing heart to preach on some end times events I have never sensed uh, for many ever in my lifetime, I don't think, uh, such a ripple effect around the world where there seems to be such uncertainty and changing times and uh, adjustment of norms. We also see the earth groaning under the curse of sin, don't we? And this week, how tragic to observe the incredible damage of the earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand. I was captured by some reporting that was going on about text messaging that was coming out of the rubble in a city, maybe in some mountainous region of Pakistan when there is a tragic Earthquake. You don't have as much of that kind of technology, though it is now everywhere around the world, even in the deepest parts of Africa. You see them with their cell phones walking down a dirt road, and they live in a mud hut. In a contemporary, advanced, technologically advanced city like Christ Church, it was to be expected that in the rubble, from out underneath the rubble, would come eventually text messages. Mommy, please help me. There was some sick humor I know that was going on and people were faking those messages. But I want you to capture that feeling in your imagination of being caught in a cataclysmic event. Being overwhelmed with what's happening around you as though it were an earthquake quake that had caused the building to fall in around you. And as the air is being squished out of you, you somehow squeak out a text message, please help me. I wonder if there's not people here this morning that maybe this week or maybe in an ongoing way, you have felt that way. You have felt like your world has, has just caved in on you. You have had major issues to deal with. It's like you can't catch your breath. You need rescued. And maybe you feel like someone trying to get a little text out from underneath the rubble and it seems like nobody's coming to your rescue. Dear God, I need help. And it seems silent. I want to encourage you this morning. We are going to return to Genesis. We're going to try to knock out 46 and 47. Genesis chapter 46 and 47. You'll have to... Buckle on your seatbelt. But before we go there, will you go with me to Psalm 91 this morning? Psalm 91. 
I want you to be encouraged and I want you to be strengthened. I want you to enter this message with the idea that rescue is our key word. Some here today really need rescued. Some you just need a renewed focus and glimpse of a a God who rescues. Others need to identify the incredibly serious condition in which you are living and you need the ultimate rescue from your own sin. The psalmist in verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 91 gives us very encouraging words. I think you'll find great hope in these words. I have found myself using Psalm 91 quite often lately at bedsides and in difficult situations to bring encouragement. The psalmist, looking at verse 14 of Psalm 91, says, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. There's our word. And I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble, and I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. If you flip to the beginning of that psalm, he writes these encouraging words. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 4 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. He will rescue you. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 11 says that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Back to verse 14. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will, say the word with me, I will rescue him. We have a God who rescues I want you to see that in our passage today, we have a lot of territory to cover, and it is um, a running commentary on what's been happening in the life of Joseph, with somewhat of an emphasis on his father, Jacob. If you've been with us as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, this great book of beginnings, you know that we're getting close to the end. And one of the things that's happened is we have focused on the life of Joseph, This remarkable young man, sold into slavery by his brothers, has not seen his father Jacob for over 22 years. Where we left off, Joseph had revealed his identity to his brothers. He had been reconciled and reunited to his brothers. And with Pharaoh's blessing in Egypt, Joseph had sent his brothers back home. You see, there is worldwide famine in response to what Joseph had interpreted to the Pharaoh's dream many years before. God had, through Joseph and a dream of Pharaoh, revealed that there would be seven years of plenty with great harvest, and Joseph had administrated that. And then that was followed on the heels of the plenty were seven years of phenomenal famine, and that's what we're into now. We're over two years into the seven years of famine, and Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, God's people, 
God's chosen people through whom he has promised, I will build a great nation, I will preserve you, I will protect you. It doesn't feel like God is in control when we're in this passage now. The famine is out of control. The whole world is starving to death. Egypt, pagan Egypt, is where God has chosen to raise up his man Joseph to put aside preserves to save the world. Jacob has sent his sons down in to Egypt on two occasions. On the second occasion is when, we, when Joseph revealed himself to them. And then he has found out that his father is still alive. And then with Pharaoh's blessing, he has said, go back. And Pharaoh has sent carts and horse and donkeys and so forth to cart them all back down into Egypt. What I want to do is I'd like to title this section of our message, God's Blessing During the Worst of Times. God's Blessing During the Worst of Times. What we're going to do is we're going to read through chapters 46 and all but the last few verses of 47. We're going to cover a big section of Genesis. And I want to break it down into segments with titles so that we can all understand exactly what's happening. And then we're going to draw some spiritual lessons in conclusion that I think will challenge you and encourage you. So now for the history lesson as God blesses his people during the worst of times. The first thing we see, and let's pick it up back at chapter 45 with verse 27, so we get a little bit of the context. The first thing we're going to see as we enter chapter 46, verses 1 through 4, is number 1, God's promises to Jacob. God's promise. Look at verse 27 of chapter 45. When they told him everything, Joseph said to them, when they told, that was Jacob back home, and when he saw the carts that Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive and I will go to see him before I die. Now you need to understand as we read the passage that God has given Jacob a new name. That name is Israel. That's where the very name for the nation of Israel comes from today. The people in Israel today are the descendants of Jacob. He has the name Israel, but Starting with this passage that we just read and going into 46, you're going to see that Jacob and Israel will be used interchangeably. So do not be confused. Israel and Jacob are both referring to a man, the father of Joseph, whom he hasn't seen for over 22 years. And, and Jacob, though at one time had somewhat of a negative connotation, Jacob the deceiver, it seems that he's kind of in the old part of his life, in the end of his life, Jacob no longer has negative connotation and it's used interchangeably with Israel. So don't be confused as we read. So, verse 1 of chapter 46 says, Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba... He offered sacrifices to God, his father, Isaac, of the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel. See, he's flipping the names. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. The first thing we see in the passage, in these first four verses, are God's promises to Jacob. God's promise. Now let's just stop there and picture what's happening. Egypt, where there's plenty of food, and where Joseph is. The brothers have been going back and forth from Canaan to Egypt. 
They've had two trips. This time they've taken the ox carts and donkey carts and carts with instruction, with Pharaoh's blessing. Bring it all back. Bring your brothers, their wives, your nephews, your nieces, your papa. Bring them back. Jacob receives the word from the older brothers. He believes them that Joseph is still alive. He can't believe it. We're going to have their reunion in a few minutes. He gets in a cart and the old man goes back down. And before he comes out of the promised land, see, God has given them Canaan. He has promised them this land. This is your land. And before he leaves the land, the southern part of it, he gets to Beersheba. It's a place where he has met with God before. This passage in the early part of chapter 46 is the eighth time that Jacob has talked to God. Eight times that we have recorded. It's the final time. And Jacob stops at Beersheba to rest before he's actually going to leave the promised land and go into Egypt. Now this is interesting. And he hears from God. And God assures him that it is his will for him to go. Look at that there's four parts to what God promises him. First of all, he reminds him in a vision at night. Jacob, Jacob says, here I am. Then verse 3. I am the God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. The first part of the promise is, Jacob, I reaffirm the fact that I will make you into a great nation. It's interesting, isn't it, that God tells him, don't be afraid to go into Egypt. I was thinking about that. What's that all about? Well, do you remember that Jacob's grandfather, Abram, 215 years before this moment, did what? Out of the will of God, walking out from underneath the umbrella of the blessing of God, during a time of extreme famine in Canaan, the promised land of God, without waiting for God's direction, without waiting for God's instruction, tried to solve his own problems. And remember what he did? He went into Egypt. He fled to Egypt and he got into all kinds of trouble. And you'll notice in your mind's eye, those of you that remember the story, notice the contrast of this story, 46 and 47, of Jacob going into Egypt, receiving the wealth of Egypt, receiving the blessing of Potiphar, and the Pharaoh, excuse me. You need to think of this as though Jacob is in extreme difficulty, and he is. He's starving with his sons. And I want you to begin to put into your mind's eye the picture of the ark and the floodwaters rising and the only hope the people had to be rescued by God was to go into the ark. And interestingly enough, in a sense, we have Egypt acting as a type of an ark. In the bowels of Egypt, in the, in the heartland of Egypt, is where God, in a pagan land, is going to bring his people and preserve them safely when all around them it's cataclysmic and it's a horrible circumstance. And God is going to rescue them with an ark named Egypt. That's a strange concept because it wasn't too long before that, 215 years, that Papa Abraham had gone down there. And that's the time he lied to the Pharaoh, said that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Remember that, that half-truth? Got him in all kinds of trouble, got all kinds of disease going in Pharaoh's court with his people. They got sick and skin disease. And what a contrast with Jacob going to Egypt, receiving the blessing of Egypt, the blessing of Pharaoh, the preserving power of a pagan land, in contrast to Abraham being out of the will of God and Pharaoh couldn't get him out of Egypt fast enough. He did not bless him. He almost took his life and Abraham was glad to get out of there in the nick of time. 
And so I think that Jacob is reviewing some of these things in his mind when he lies down to go to sleep that night and he knows that the carts are going to cross the border and go into the territory towards Egypt. And this is all going through his mind. He knows the story of his father Abraham. He knows that Abraham was disobedient. He knows that when Abraham went to Egypt before on two occasions, it did not receive the blessing of God. And so God speaks to him and says, this time I'm taking you to Egypt. And so he promises him to not be afraid, and he promises him that he will make a great nation, reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant. Look at the next part, verse 4. I will go down to Egypt with you. Second part of the thing he promises, second promise is, I will go with you. The third part of the promise is, and I will surely bring you back again. And the fourth part of the promise is, is that Joseph, your beloved son's own hand, will close your eyes in death, a way of saying that he will be there to comfort you. It is of notable interest, I think, that God had allowed Joseph to be in his father's home for 17 years. Do you remember that? And then his brothers attacked him, threw him in a pit, sold him to Egypt with slave traders. And now you're going to see in this story that Jacob, as he moves into Egypt, is going to end his life, conclude his life with 17 more years with Joseph. 17, first 17 years of Joseph's life were with his father. The last 17 years of Jacob's life are with Joseph. 17 and 17. I have no idea if it means anything. I just thought it was interesting how that broke down. So that's the first thing we have in our passage. God's promise. God says, Jacob, I'll never leave you or forsake you. God says, Jacob, do not be afraid for I am your God and I am with you. Jacob, do not fear what men will do unto you. Jacob, don't be afraid to go into pagan Egypt. That is my ark of refuge for you. You go, I'll take you down there, and I'll bring you back. Now, he'll be carried out, because he'll be buried up in the land of his fathers. The second part of the section that we want to read is kind of the least interesting of the whole thing. It's, it's a genealogy. It's a record of the family. And I call this part number two, Jacob's people. Jacob's people. We move from God's promise to Jacob to a focus on Jacob's people. And this is a record of who goes into Egypt with Jacob. I'm not going to read it word for word. Let's highlight part of it. And then I'm going to make a few comments about some problems that there are with this passage. And I have no conclusions for you. Okay? Then Jacob, verse 5, left Beersheba. Okay, he has spoken to God. He has God's green light to go. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan, and Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. And he took with him to Egypt his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, and his granddaughters, and all his offspring. And that's interesting, because there's mostly the names of all men in this passage. He says it includes their daughters and the daughter and granddaughters. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. So for the record... Moses, the historian for the children of Israel, is giving the account of exactly who went 
And what part of the family they were, you'll notice right away in verse 8, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, he starts with the oldest and he works with the youngest and he goes to Simeon in verse 10 and Levi in verse 11 and Judah in verse 12. He makes the footnote in verse 12 that Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. They didn't go with. Remember that horrible story? Got the sons of Perez, 13 Issachar, 14 Zebulun, some footnotes about his daughter Dinah. The sons of his daughters of his were 33 in all. The sons of Gad, verse 16. The sons of Asher. These are the 12 sons, the men who will, from where the names of the 12 tribes of Israel will, originated. The sons of Beriah, the sons, verse 18, their children born to Jacob, Zilpah, verse 19, Joseph and Benjamin. He gives credit to Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim. Record of them, the sons of Benjamin. This might be a verse that you want to take note of. Uh, this passage is useful if you're looking for a name, especially if you have twin boys in the womb. Look at this. How about Muppim and Huppim and Ard? How's that, huh? Well, we got two boys coming out. Well, let's name them Muppin and Muppim and Huppim or something. I mean, this is crazy stuff. This is the kind of stuff I know that we often just skim through or skip over when we're reading. It was very important to the Israelites. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, the end of verse 22. Then he goes on, the son of Dan, he only had one son, the sons of Naphtali, the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah. Remember, Jacob had four different wives through whom he had these sets of sons, and then their sons are given record. All those with Jacob who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, verse 26, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Now, now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. Let's stop there for just a minute. Let me comment as we have in this second part here, Jacob's people, verses 5 to 27, that it says 70 people went down. Let me just say this. I don't know what the answer is, and from reading the commentaries, it appears that Bible scholars don't have a clear, direct answer other than in, in, in the Israelite history, they like the number 70. You'll notice in Genesis back in chapter 10 or 11, when it gave the table of nations, it gave 70 nations. There are other uh, 70 years of exile. There were other 70s that were common. But what the problem here is, is that in, I think it's Leviticus, it says there's 66 that went. It says 70 here. In Stephen's message in Acts, it says 75 went. There's discrep discrepancy among the numbers of exactly who went. It's also interesting to note that like Benjamin was a pretty young man, maybe just barely 20, and it already gives him credit for what, like eight sons or something there. He was really moving fast, or he had multiple wives, or in their mind, those sons went with him down to Egypt in his loins, and they weren't even born yet. There's, there's just some interesting nuance here that I decided I didn't think it was all that useful for us to worry about it. It could be that some people will point to a passage like this and say, see, the Bible's not accurate. Look at those different numbers. And there's some Bible students who love to sit around and look at minutia and look at little things like that. And it is interesting to reconcile some of those things. But in this one, it seems to be just the way the historian recorded it. And they're not sure exactly who he left off the list, who he included in the list, and why he called it 70, and why in other passages it wasn't. 
70. And the answer that I, I don't know what the answer is. So let's move on. Okay, so God's promise, number one, that was really edifying, wasn't it? And, and number two is Jacob's people. And then number three, verses 28 through 30 in chapter 46, I just call it Joseph's Papa. Joseph's Papa. Look at this. This is very emotional section. Verse 28, chapter 46. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready. And he went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and he wept for a long time. Can you imagine? That's a powerful moment there, isn't it? Somewhat reminiscent of the New Testament story of the prodigal son where the father longed for his son and waited for him, ran to him and threw his arms around his neck. For over two decades, Jacob has thought that this beloved son Joseph was dead. And here he is with his arms around his neck. And it said they held each other and they wept for a long time. That would have been a powerful moment to observe, wouldn't it? Israel's response, Jacob's response in verse 30 was, he said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Well, we've seen God's promises, verses 1 through 4, Jacob's people listed in 5 through 27 so that the Israelites' future would have a record that these people really came from Abraham. They really were the descendants of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see the reunion with Joseph and his papa. And now let's look at Pharaoh's placement. Pharaoh's placement. This is chapter 46, verse 31, clear through chapter 47, verse 10. Let's read it quickly, and let's take in what's happening here, beginning with verse 31 of chapter 46 through chapter 47, 10. And then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up, And I will speak to Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. Now notice the the careful wording that Joseph's doing. Joseph's shrewd here. He knows what he's doing. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. Now he's going to, he's orienting his brothers. Verse 33. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So Joseph's smart. You also want to notice that back in chapter 45 and verse 10... That Joseph's telling his brothers to go back and get their father, come back to him. And 45.10 says, and you shall live in the region of Goshen. And look what it says, and be near me. Evidently, Joseph's palace was in Goshen. And Goshen was a fertile, rich heartland of Egypt that perhaps, just like you can imagine parts of the country that if we had a famine... Or if we had difficult times, there are parts of the country where you have relatives that you might go and you're just going to get along better there. You're just going to get along better in Preston County than you will Berkeley County. You know, you're just going to do better. You're going to have trout to catch out of the stream till it dries up. And you're going to have a little bit of squirrel for supper. 
You won't have any biscuits, but you'll have score. You know, you can just get. And Goshen was a more fertile. It was a farmland area, and it was where Joseph had chosen to live. And evidently, also with Joseph administrating the stockpile of grain that they were going to administrate out over the seven years of famine, evidently that was probably one of the areas that they had incredibly stockpiled. You remember that they had stockpiled at all the cities around Egypt. And he wanted Pharaoh's blessing for his family to move into Goshen area with him. It was also an area where they could keep their livestock. Evidently, there was enough browse, enough dry grass that they could keep, and enough trickle of water out of mountain springs or something that they could keep their livestock alive in Goshen. So Joseph, he greases the skids, and he tells them, make sure you tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds. This is also interesting for another reason that we'll talk about later. He said, then you will be allowed, let's go back to our text, the end of verse 34, then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. So he paves the way, he goes to Pharaoh, He, of course, has great favor in Pharaoh's eyes. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. I thought that was interesting. Oh, Joseph, he's concerned about which ones of his brothers speak to Pharaoh. I don't know if he looked at their teeth or what, but he said, look, you, you, and you, and you, you go speak to Pharaoh and make sure you say what I said to say. Pharaoh asked the brothers, verse 3, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. And they also said to him, We have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. See, it was the best part of Egypt the breadbasket of Egypt. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. What a contrast this Pharaoh is with the Pharaoh who just about took the life of Abraham for lying about his wife. He gets kicked out out of the will of God. Jacob gets welcomed in with his son in the will of God. Not only do they get welcomed into the ark of Egypt, you see, they cannot survive anywhere else. And God said, I will rescue you. You go there. And there he had his son, Joseph, ahead of time, prepare the way, finding favor with Pharaoh to receive them, to be preserved as God's people. And so there they are. And Pharaoh says, go. Not only does he welcome them, he gives them the the best, richest part of the land. And not only that, he gives them a job. Did you notice? Because they're the handlers of livestock. Egypt also had a demand for livestock. And so he said, any of them want a job, they can actually work for me. So they made money working for Pharaoh, plus their own livestock. Interesting. It's almost as though God has a sense of humor how he stacks this up. As we read on quickly and we see that Pharaoh has placed them there, that's Pharaoh's placement in Goshen. We move on, though, quickly, and we see that Egypt's got a problem. Egypt's problem is number five. Look at chapter 47, beginning with verse 13, but let's back up just a touch, actually, and let's read about uh, Jacob standing before Pharaoh. 
Verse 7, chapter 47. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And after Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult. Few in that he was younger as an old man than how old his father Abraham and Isaac had lived. And they have been difficult, no doubt a reference to these rascal sons of his and Joseph being lost. And they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. I think that's an interesting anecdote. Interesting that old Jacob, with his big, white, bushy beard, no doubt, comes in to the royal palace of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has blessed him and his family by welcoming into his ark of refuge But the one who is supposed to give the blessing, the king, receives a blessing from the man of God. The pagan king receives a blessing from the man of God. Doesn't that remind you of the fact that all who have been blessed will be a blessing to Israel will be blessed by Israel? This Pharaoh didn't know it, but one of the greatest insurance plans he ever had was being kind to Israel and his sons. Oh, that some leaders I know would wake up to that reality. However, we go on and we see Egypt has huge problems. Egypt has a problem. Let's go. Verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Verse 12 of chapter 47. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and his father's household with food according to the number of their children. So in the middle of famine, God is rescuing them and blessing them. Verse 13 now, Egypt's problem. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. And when the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan were gone... All Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Number five, part five of our story is Egypt's problem, and it is that that as they have administrated the food, this has not been a freebie program. The culture of the day, evidently, did not allow in their thinking an entitlement mentality. They could not process the fact that you would get something for nothing it's also evident that Pharaoh has, has administrated a rigorous oversight of the food. He's staying in control of his com- country. This is a time of potential anarchy when people are going without food and they would want to take over the granaries. And so evidently by military police power, he is controlling everything. And if you want food, you've got to pay for it. The problem is they're now into their third year of the famine and no one has any money left. Cash reserves are gone. Nobody has money with which to drive food, to buy food. Egypt's problem, then, number five, turns into number six, Pharaoh's prosperity. Pharaoh's prosperity, number six part of our story. This is chapter 47, verses 16 to 26. So then do this. Bring your livestock, said Joseph, and I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, 
and their goats and their cattle and their donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. And when the year was over, they came to him the following year. And they said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, that there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. This Joseph was quite a guy, wasn't he? And the day this Pharaoh ever encountered this Joseph was his lucky day, wasn't it? Everything Joseph does turns to gold. Joseph has collected every last dollar bill from the people. And now the people are starving and they want to exchange all their livestock. Joseph has rounded up all of the cattle, the sheep, the goats. Guess who's getting paid by Pharaoh to take care of them? His brothers in Goshen, enriching them. And the people are happy with it. You'll see in a moment that it pleases the people. So the people come up with another idea after three years of famine. How about my body? It's all I have left and my land. It's not going to do me any good if I'm dead. And these big stockpiles of grain. In verse 20 again, So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Some would criticize Joseph for that. You'll see in a moment that it says it pleased the people. One of the things I think we have to understand as we read a passage like this is the incredible difference in the mindset of an American today and what an Egyptian would have thought of in that day. There was private property rights. Pharaoh was a deity. They thought that Pharaoh was a god. They thought that he was in control of everything. They did not have an entitlement mentality. Probably, they would have rather starved to death than have taken something without paying for it. So he moves on and Joseph, it says, reduced the people to servitude. So Pharaoh now owns all their money, all their animals, all their land, and they're even obligated to work for him. Verse 22, however, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. I think it's notable that Joseph did not watch out for the priests. It says Pharaoh watched out for the priests because they were pagans. I don't think Joseph bent over backwards for the Egyptian pagan priests. Joseph said to the people, verse 23, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. They're happy about it. They're just glad to get food. Evidently, there's some ability to plant and try to irrigate and grow. And then they're grinding the rest of the seed. And it says, so Joseph, verse 26, established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today. At the time when Moses wrote this, 400 some years later, evidently that was still in force, this 20% flat tax 
still enforced that a fifth of the produce produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt, verse 27, in the region of Goshen, and they acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. And we'll stop there. Say, Number six is, number five is Egypt's problem. They, had, they were starving to death. Number six is Pharaoh prospers. Number seven is Israel produces. Notice in the middle of this, in the middle of tr- most traumatic times, what's happening to God's people? They are prospering. They have been in the ark of Egypt, safe from the storms, One of the reasons God took them into Egypt, and we'll pick up on this a little bit later in another message, but remember when it said that they despised shepherds? If you recall also when Joseph's brothers came and ate in Joseph's house before he had revealed himself to him, the servants refused to eat in the same room with the, with the Israelites. Egyptians hated Hebrews. They thought they were racially superior to the Hebrews. One of the reasons that God brought his 12 sons of Jacob down into Egypt was to preserve them in the belly of the ark of Egypt. We now have a family that is about 250, 300 years old or more, Abraham, Isaac to Jacob with their lifespan. It is now at least 70 in number. But in a little over 400 years, they are going to exponentially grow and they are going to exodus out of Egypt, led by Moses, through the parting of the Red Sea. The Bible tells us that there were over 600,000 fighting men in Israel. If you give them each a wife and you give them each a couple kids, it's not hard to calculate that minimally there were 2 million Israelites that will exit out in 400 years. So for 200 to 300 years, they're up to 70. With these 12 sons, God's promise is now ready to explode that they would be like the sands of the sea, the stars of the heaven. And in 400 years, following Moses is going to be at least 2 million. I believe it had to be closer to 6 million people that went across the wilderness following Moses, God's established people. So what do we take home with us today? We've had our history overview. Can I just suggest two things in closing very quickly? What do we get from a story like this? What do we get from Jacob and his sons? And it gives us this extensive account of them living through the famine. One of the lessons that we can't miss is this. Number one, it is that God sovereignly rules the world. Do you know that? God sovereignly rules the world. These were horrible times. These were times of people dying and starving and having nothing. Do you think it was by mistake that many years before that Joseph was sold into Egypt, he was sent ahead to prepare the way? God's timing was perfect. God had a plan. God was preserving his people. Listen to me. I have never talked to more people who haven't talked to one another who are saying the same things. Pastor Van, what's going on in our world? I don't know if the price of oil has you down. I don't know if the the alignment of the Arab nations is something that you're really concerned about. I don't know if the the, the United States position of turning against Israel has you 
concerned, but that we are certainly setting the stage for the last days. Listen, we have a sovereign God who is in control. It's not a mistake. And He is working out His plan. You can take that God's promises to the bank. You can bring that home into your own home. Maybe you're under a pile of rubble and you're trying to text message God and hope He hears you get me out of my mess. Listen, God is sovereign and God sees you and God will take care of you and God's promises are true. You see, when God promised Abraham that He would make a great nation out of him, He couldn't say all of a sudden, Oops, the famine got him and they all died off. Do you know that God never says oops? And that God knew there was a famine and that God was taking his people out of the promised land on purpose. I have five reasons I didn't give you. Say amen, Sabolsky. I'll get him another day. And God on purpose brought his people into the ark of Egypt to preserve them because he is sovereign over the affairs of kings The heart of the king is in his hand. Do not, do not doubt that God is in control. Stand strong in that reality. Jacob is an example. He understands. And then just secondly, do you see in this story not only that God is sovereign, sovereignly rules the world, but that God strategically places his man. God strategically places his man God had Joseph there all along for his reason. And you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of another man that's been strategically placed for us. A man that strategically went to the cross when a whole bunch of people needed an ark of refuge. You see, the Bible's clear, isn't it? And some of you know what it is to be lost in your sin. You're overwhelmed with your guilt and you don't know what to do about it and you need to seek refuge in the ark. The door doesn't stay open forever. But God has strategically placed the man, Christ Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. Have you looked to Him today, my friend? Are you burdened down with sin? Do you admit your sinfulness? Do you know that you're lost? Do you worry about dying and spending eternity in hell? That's the reality of Scripture. But God has strategically placed Christ to be your sin bearer, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty in the presence of a holy God, so that you don't have to pay the price for your own sin, because He will give you His righteousness and you can be saved today. Just like Joseph was there waiting for their salvation, Jesus is here waiting for your salvation. Turn your life over to Him. He's strategically placed before it's everlastingly too late. Let's bow our heads, please. Do you know Jesus today, my friend? Let me talk first of all to somebody who might be burdened with guilt today and you know you're a sinner. You're not sure what to do with it. Boy, I just challenge you in your heart and mind right now before the presence of an all-seeing, all-knowing, holy God to admit your sinfulness to God. The Bible clearly tells us the wages of your sin, my friend, is death. And God so loved the world that He strategically placed His only begotten Son to take your place on the cross. That's why we love Jesus around here. It's why we talk about Him all the time, because He's God in the flesh, went to the cross with our sin, was buried, crucified, buried, and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven 40 days later, and we're going to be with Him one day in His presence. Our precious Lord Jesus. Is He your precious Lord Jesus? 
in the privacy of your own mind, admit your sinfulness and believe in him today by faith, accepting what he's done at the cross for you. Confess with your mouth that your trust and faith is in Jesus alone. That's that strategically placed one there to rescue us. In a way, you could say the cross is an ark, couldn't you? Come to the ark of the cross and get in and be saved and rescued. How about you, Christian? You've been doubting God's promises. You feel like you're overwhelmed and you're having to take medication because your nerves are shot because of the world in which we're living. Listen, God's promises are true and God is sovereign and he is administrating the affairs of this world. And from the king of Egypt to the king of Lebanon to the king of the White House, they're in the palm of his hand like puppets on a string. You do not have to be afraid today. Cast your cares upon him. Enter into the ark of his promises, the refuge of his sheltering hand. He will rescue you. He's a rescuing God. So, Father, we commit our lives to you. You know our hearts. You know our minds. Do your work in us, I pray. Help us to stop our fretting and to be still and know that you are God. You are in control. That your ways are perfect. In Jesus' name I pray.